0: Welcome and thank you for listening to the New Day Podcast. We are located in South Kansas City, proclaiming the good news of God's grace to our region and abroad. If you'd like more information, please visit our website, newdaykc.org.
1: A little difficult because I'm going to talk about suffering for the next hour. <laughs> I'm a little conflicted. <laughs> Uh, you may notice in your bulletin that we're talking about the, the book of Naomi today. There is no book. It's the book of Ruth. But just like the, uh, uh, the, the, product, the parable of the prodigal son, you know, we've kind of talked about the a lot, and it's really, it's, it's like it's not about the prodigal son. There's two sons and there's a father, and it's really, a, it's a demonstration of how much the father loves. That's what it's about. It's about, it's the story of how, how the father loves but somebody thought, oh, man, I, I like being the prodigal. I, that's me. That's what this story is about. And so somehow it's got the name, prodigal son. Ruth is a little bit the same thing. If you know the story of Ruth, uh, Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Ruth is awesome. She's beautiful. She's, I mean, in my mind, being a foreigner, you're, all, you're already attractive just because you're a foreigner. I don't know why. Uh, Somehow I have that in my head. So, this beautiful young girl, Boaz is this uh, authority in town, he's a successful figure, he's a man of incredible integrity, and he chooses to love her. Ruth has an awesome life. He provides for, he makes sure every need is met. That's the life I want. That's not what that book is about. That book is about Naomi. Naomi has everyone she knows dies. She's angry. She's mad. It's horrible, that she overcomes. Um, and so I, I just want to twist that focus a little bit. Now, where's all this come from? Um, I have to. I got to pick on Lloyd just a tiny bit because I just can't resist it. He, he's trying to help us learn how to read the Bible and see it differently. And so he's. I can't remember even what verse it was, but he's got some verse out, and he says, Now, when you read this, I mean, notice the tense of the verb. It's indicative. It's not imperative. I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? You know? It's like Brenda's post about eschewing obfuscation. I'm like, I don't get it, you know? i got to go look all that up. I'm not that smart. Most of this message I got from late-night TV. I just, I re-watched a a movie recently. You'll, you'll, you'll know it. I'll tell you who's in it. Bill Murray and Annie McDowell. Groundhog Day. Exactly. Groundhog Day. Everybody knows that. And I'm sure you've seen it. And, and the message of Groundhog Day is really significant to me because it's, man, if you don't get it right, you're going to just do it over and over and over and over until you get it right. I mean, that's part of the, you know, my frustration with the theology of God is unchanging is that I want him to change and change the rules a little bit so that we don't have to do it over and over and over again. Um, once Bill Murray, I can't even remember what his name is in the movie, but uh, once he figures out, I mean, he tries everything in the world to get through life, so to speak, and figure this out, but when he finally surrenders, when he's finally at that place of giving up, then he wakes up. See, and He realizes love is the only thing that really has value and significance there, and that's when it all comes together. Uh, John Lynch last week made reference to a a favorite book of mine, The Velveteen Rabbit. See? I mean, my, I'm mean, talking really sophisticated literature here. <laughs> I mean, clearly. So in The Velveteen Rabbit this poor little bunny is like just tore to tatters. I mean its fur is all rubbed off, its joints are all loose and broken and yet it says, you know, yeah it hurts and is awkward and stuff but in the end you're real you know, and being real makes it worth it. Um, It's the same message over and over and over and over again wherever I look. So, if you've come today wanting to hear how you're going to win the lottery, life's going to be good, you'll love your job, all your kids will turn out perfect, I just can't get there. I just can't get there. So, it's going to be hard, it'll be worth it. So, to just be really direct, I'll tell you what I have written here. You are going to suffer. The question is, what will you do with it? So, and that's, I mean, it's, you know, it's unavoidable truth, it's a reality. So I'm actually excited about what I'm going to share. So come with me a little bit on this journey here. Uh, for a number of years, uh, I, well, I can't, it's like I can't quite see it like so we'll try well just i'm brenda's saying that's good she doesn't know i have 11 pages here and i'm only halfway down the first page (laughs) when i have to skip the rest just you'll let me know so uh, i've been asking this question for a long time do you have to suffer to know god and part of that is born out of my experience um there's been a lot of stuff in my life that's been very difficult and very painful, um, and in that, there's a, I want to say like a, a breaking that's occurred or a resignation, a realization where God steps in and says, you know what, I really love you, and somehow it just fixes it all. Um, it's undoing. Um, so I have that experience, and I know when I talk to people, people who have had just really rough stuff they're the people who I know; they really know God. They're really—I like these people, but I can't. This whole concept of—I don't want their life, though. This is hard, you know. So I'm trying to figure out, what, you know, what's going on here. So it's been a question for a long time. So uh, it's shaping the way I view things. I'm—I'm. I'm, what happens is you begin to question. Well, their life's, like, really good. I see it on Facebook all the time, and uh, how could they even possibly know God? See? And I'm like, there's got to be my brain. This. I'm not getting the whole picture clearly. I know that I'm not, but I don't know what the whole picture is, and that's why this question has continued. So I asked John Lynch. He was here last week. Had a few minutes. Hey, how about suffering? Do you have to suffer to know God? I thought, you know, he'd have a lot of wisdom. He looked me right in the eyes. He says, man, Good question. I don't have any idea, but if you figure it out, let me know. I'm like, thanks a lot, Betty. Thanks a lot. You know, the next day he spoke about suffering. Um I'm like, yeah, he probably, I think he knew more than he was letting on, just didn't want to burst my bubble. So eventually I realized I'm asking the wrong question. My question assumes something that I didn't intend to assume, and that is that. There are people in the world who don't suffer. There's no such thing. My question has no merit. The question doesn't make sense. Everybody suffers. So can I ask the question, can you know God without suffering? Well, if there was someone out there that didn't suffer, I'd have to ask them if they know God. But there is no such people out there. So my question is wrong. So that was exciting to me. Uh, Now let me... I want to connect two thoughts here for you. The first, last week, if you were, if you were here, uh, John Lynch, he defined love just briefly, and I'm going to uh, reiterate that a little bit. Uh, and, if, and hopefully I'll give you enough detail that even if you weren't here, you'll understand what he said. But love, as John defined it, is meeting needs. He says, we experience love in our need, and he defined it as actions that meet need. was pretty good with that. And, of course, my mind says, okay, there's an implication there. For there to be love, there has to be need that needs to be met. That's suffering. See? To me, there's want there. So in my life, when there's want, that means I'm hurting. I'm ailing. So the opportunity to love me must mean that there's need somehow. Now, there's biblical precedence for this even. Uh, let me, and and you'll remember the simple story in Luke 7, Simon the Pharisee, he invites Jesus over for dinner, Uh, I'm not going to read the whole story here, all the text, but Simon invites Jesus over, Jesus comes in, I, I don't know how it is in those days, but, and whenever I read these stories, there's always someone that wasn't invited that just walks in, I don't get it, I think they didn't have air conditioning, and maybe they ate on the patio, Jesus is there with Simon the Pharisee and some lady, not a nice lady, lady that everybody knows, lady of ill repute I think, she comes in, she's standing next to Jesus weeping. Her tears are wetting his feet. She pours an alabaster jar of perfume all over him. Simon's like, hey, uh, not here folks, this is not, you know, not what I want, he's not happy. Jesus says, Simon, I got, I got something to tell you. You know, track with me here for a second. There's some debtors. Debtors are people who owe. They are suffering. They're hurting. They have want. So, same concept in there. One sufferer, debtor, has a big debt. The other has a small debt. Jesus asks Simon, so, if the, if the, is it the deddy the lender, um, if he, forgives this debt, which one of these two debtors will love him more? And Simon answers, well, of course, the the one that's forgiven the bigger debt. Jesus says, well, you judge correctly. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So clearly there's a connection here between the uh, propensity to love and the quantity of forgiveness that one has known. Uh, I really like this, uh, the way Jesus put this sentence together, because it's, it's all in the right order to me at this point. Her sins have been forgiven, as you can see, because of the great love that she has. So that love, somehow, that she's expressing has stemmed out of and become a natural expression of her having been forgiven. proof positive that she knows forgiveness so now I'm going to stop right there I'm not going to develop that thought anymore and, and, and I'll tell you why I, I get in trouble if I go further there because if I can't be loved unless I have need or want then what am I going to go to heaven for because when I get to heaven there's not going to be need or want right so in heaven is nobody going to love me I, clearly there's something wrong there I don't get the whole picture is not nope I don't get it I'm going to stay right here. I know what I've said so far is right. I'm not going to go any further. I did want to make mention, though, that my wife often says that I'm really hard to love, and I'm assuming that she means that I have very little need and want. Oh, that was... <laughs> See? I think I should go slower for the rest of the time. So there's one, a second thought here that I want to connect Slide Jim. Lloyd's put this verse up several times in the last few weeks. He likes this verse. Let's read it. 1 Peter 5.8 Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I want to read this real casually, and in my mind, when I read that, I want to say, okay, so if I believe, I won't suffer, because devouring and suffering is the same thing, right? Can't that be it? I, I can have a nice life? Isn't that what God has promised me? And it doesn't say that at all. It's a terrible verse. <laughs> it says, look, there's an enemy that wants to devour you, and what, what are the words that use it uses here? It says the family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing suffering. Okay, there's like not any exceptions there. It's like everybody's suffering. The question is about devouring. So, I'm gonna revise my question yet again. I'm gonna say, okay, so I'm going to suffer. The question now becomes how do I suffer without being devoured? That is the question. So this verse says there's some process that exists. There's, it doesn't tell you really a whole lot about the process necessarily, but it at least says that there is, uh, there's a way to not be devoured. Otherwise it wouldn't tell us to not be, I assume. Uh, Oswald Chambers, I like Oswald Chambers. Uh, he's like from 100 years ago. Um, Died an early death in his 40s, I think. Um, I think he got it. Uh, And he, uh, there's all these little quips and phrases and quotable quotes and stuff. But one of the things that he says that I really like is that you cannot control your circumstance, but you can your environment. there's loss, there's suffering, there's pain, there's all kinds of things that happen. Those are circumstances, and we live in circumstances, and some of them we can manage and manipulate, but by and large, the circumstance of our life is what the circumstances of our life is. But the environment we live in, in those circumstances, we have some measure of control over. This, uh, in the parable that I just mentioned, uh, this gal that's putting perfume all over Jesus' feet and weeping, and she's loving people. I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, it's an odd picture, but I can't help but believe that that is a woman of joy. She knows freedom. She knows life. She's alive. She's loving. She's caring, okay? I like that life. Uh, That's what I want. There's reality in there. Um, So the environment that she lives in, although there are, I don't know anything about the circumstances of her life, but I would say the environment that she's now created for herself by expressing love has changed significantly her life. She cannot have ended up who she was without having a really hard life. You don't just choose to go there, you get driven there. Um, so I'm going I'm to assert that she had a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and a lot of loss. But in that knowledge of forgiveness, in being freed and released from that, she was able to change the environment that she was in. We don't need that anymore. We don't even want to be reminded. Eventually, I'm going to read the book of Ruth to you. <laughs> I promise. So, Suffering is not bad. Uh, and nowhere does God promise that we're not going to suffer, that we're not going to have a trouble-free life. Um, John Lynch, last week, he even advocated suffering. Um, he was reading from Romans 5.3. It says, you know, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love is poured out in our hearts. Um, that's about two hours worth of message right there. So there's a parallel passage that uh, I want to reference that is the same concept um, out of Second 2 Peter 2.5. Uh, it's probably verses 5 through 8 or something. Um, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, godliness mutual affection, and to affection love. So It's, a, it's the same principles and concepts, the same characters uh, are there. It says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a good part to me. But if you do not have them, you're nearsighted and blind, and you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your sins. Uh, to me, that, that's the, the whole thing there. The, and the point that I want to make from that is that if you... If you can really grab onto the notion that it's done, it's over, you're free. There's no expectation, there's no performance that's put on you, there's no behavior that you have to manage or articulate, uh, demonstrate. There's a resting in that that allows you to engage in this other part. You know, that young lady's life was changed because she was loved, she knew her sin had been forgiven. It's, it's the same point. I can't... I, it, it's like on every page of my Bible. I don't know. It's not, it wasn't there a few years ago, but it is now. <laughs> you know? So. So. Uh, I want to say, don't be ashamed of your suffering. Um, lean into God. Suffering is... It becomes an opportunity to allow that part of your being that really wants to know God to to be opened so that you can receive that affection. Um, So suffering is not a bad thing. I have this written in really bold letters, and every time I look at it, I got to... You are not a failure because there is pain and suffering in your life. Um, Let that sink in. You are not a failure because there's pain and suffering in your life. It, just, it is what it is, and it's an opportunity to engage in something higher. So don't let that, don't let pain and suffering in your life cause you to walk with your head down and embarrassed and, and hidden. Uh, don't be ashamed of that. Book of Ruth. I Have opened Bible to page two eighty nine that won't that won 't help you at all so I already mentioned that i'm you know I called it the Book of Naomi uh, as opposed to the Book of Ruth, even though it is called the Book of Ruth. Um, Ruth is the the character in the story that is loved and beautiful and great and awesome. Um, Naomi is not um, I want to just I'm going to read a couple of passages through here. I want to make mention of a little personal note here. When we come to church and like we put all the kids up here and they sing some song and the audience is full of parents and adults and stuff, I bawl. It kills me. And, and I figured out what it is, is that when those children stand up there and they're they're just doing whatever they're doing, Um, we as participants in that are loving them. Um, They are are receiving the love that all of us are sending in their direction, or however you want to say it. And when I see those children being loved like that, it just undoes me. I, I just, I lose it. I cry. I just, there's a big soft spot in my heart and that's how it just, that's one of the ways it's expressed. So in the book of Ruth, um, Ruth gets loved by Boaz, and Naomi sees it, and it just kills me, just kills me. So I'll try to read it, but just so you know, I may or may not make it. So in the book of Ruth, uh, and I have the book of Ruth here, I'm going to skim through most of it quickly. hope. Ruth lives in, no, Naomi lives in Bethlehem. No, that's not right. Yes, it is right. Um, Bethlehem and Judah. So, in the days of the judges there was famine in the land. So the man, uh, Naomi's husband, uh, and their sons, they leave and go to Moab to live because there's presumably food in Moab. Uh, so they leave the famine, they go to try to find some food, uh, a way to have life. They're looking for the same thing we're looking for. They want marriages and childrens and food and the absence of suffering. They have hopes and dreams just like us. And so Naomi and her husband go off with their two boys. Naomi's husband dies, it appears he dies pretty early in the story, so she 's left there with her two sons. Her two sons get married, and then her sons die ten years in. Uh, so now Naomi is there with two daughters in law uh, Ruth and Oprah, uh, not oprah orpa it's like it's like if you 're dyslexic you 'll say Oprah, but it 's really Orpa so, so there's great loss there. I mean, they were trying to avoid all of that, you know, because they wanted the same thing we want. Uh, and they, uh, it didn't pan out. So as you read down a little further, so she's left now uh, with no sons and no husband. Uh, she hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food back in Judah in Bethlehem. So with her two daughter-in-laws, she sets out to go there, and it says, and this is why this is very clearly a story about the, uh, the story of Naomi to me, it says she left the place where she had been living, so she's going to leave where she's living, she sets out on the road that would take them back, so she's going to go on a journey, and she wants to go back to the land of Judah. So there, to me, there's three parts there, and I'm not even going to elaborate those three parts because I just want you to see that, that uh, I just don't believe they'd waste all those words if they didn't want us to understand that this is a, a, a journey broken up into parts. So it's there. So Naomi gets to Bethlehem. Uh, I, did, uh, I was going to work in Psalm 16 Uh, and I'm going to skip most of it, but I'm gonna give you one thing from Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says, Lord, you are my portion. Uh, And when I was in college, at some chapel, I listened to a theologian talk for two and a half hours on that verse alone, and how that is the verse that refers to the thing in our heart is that we really want to know the affection of God above and beyond all these temporal things so know that Uh, and that is that's a driver in Naomi's heart and life it's what she wants it's in her soul so Naomi tries to send everybody home and they all weep aloud and she tells them to go home again and they weep out loud some more Uh, they weep out loud like three or four times that's what I'm like. Is this like a girl story? And but there are a few places I could actually say that and get away with it. <laughs> I know you won't judge me. So anyway, uh, as the story goes on, uh, Ruth and uh, Ruth says, "I ain't doing it. I ain't going." And uh, that a verse you've all heard, and you've heard at marriages sometime, about, you know, your people will be my people, and where you die, I'll die, and where you go, I'll go, and all that's in there. And it's at that that Naomi realizes, and this is what it says actually in the verse, Naomi realizes that Ruth is determined to go with her. So she stops urging her. And I just, I'm like, you know what, there's something clicks. And Naomi and says, you know what, there's more to this story. I'm not going to control this. I'm mad and angry because everything is lost, but this is happening. She's coming. I don't get it. So when she gets to Bethlehem, the town says, this is Naomi? Nobody even recognizes her. And she says, after having not been recognized, I suppose, says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So clearly, Naomi's kind of mad at God here. She's bitter. She's unhappy. Her life is lost. She is without hope, and she's blaming God for it. Well, anyway, she arrives in Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. Uh, and oh, there's a, one more little clue here that something's going on. Uh, they need to eat. I mean, they don't have anything. And so Ruth is going to go out into the fields and what they do is the, the harvesters come in and they always leave bits for the people that aren't employed and for the poor and they can pick up all these loose bits and ends and so um, as it turns out it says so just by coincidence uh, she happens to go to a Boaz's property and Boaz is actually a distant relative uh, important part of the story when you read it. So Boaz sees her and says hey who's this gal? You know what's this? And they, the Foreman on the job there say, well, that's, you know, uh, Ruth. She's, you know, the daughter-in-law or, yeah, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Oh, okay. Boaz takes an interest in her. So this is where, just right from the very beginning. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work with me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars that the men have set up for you. So he just, he gives her astounding favor. She, of course, goes back and tells Naomi this. And Naomi's like, wow. This man's our relative. And the use of the word hour is actually in there several times. And it's clear that at this point, Naomi is now, engaged in oh wait this is not this is not you trying to go find your life and me sending as you know a bitter old woman sending you to go try yourself cuz i didn't make it this is now naomi being engaged in oh wait this is about us it's our process now so there's a the act i believe that the act of boaz loving ruth is enough for naomi for that light to just begin to shine for the darkness to just break enough that her heart begins to be exposed. So, anyway, there's a whole, whole process here that occurs. Uh, Boaz keeps sending gifts home to, uh, to Naomi. Uh, there's a point at which Naomi now says that you know, uh, Ruth is kind of doubting what's going on here, and Naomi's like. No, nope, just wait. You'll see what happens here. This man is not going to rest until this whole thing is done. I promise you. So suddenly, Naomi's confident. The, the, the hope has begun to build in her. Towards the end of the story, uh, Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a child, at least a child, uh, reportedly, many more than that. Um, and there's a point at which uh, there's a, a number of prof- I'm going to say prophetic words that were spoken over uh, Boaz and Ruth at the end. Uh, references to um, uh, Perez, Tamar, Judah, uh, whole bunch of whole bunch of things here. Uh, the, and the blessing is that the child is to be a restorer of life and sustain them in their old age. Um, uh, the daughter-in-law uh, that loves you is better than even seven sons. And Naomi takes the child and lays the child in her lap. And that, after looking at half a dozen commentaries, it appears that that in her lap connects to all of these prophetic things about uh, the future of the land Uh, and the people. Um, So, in the end, Naomi is being told by God through her community that she holds in her lap the future of the nation, and she's okay with that. So, there's a a shifting that has occurred so that she is now participant with the destiny of the people that she's living with. Um, So, there's a reconnection there, and I think that that holding that child in her lap, just it's, if you've seen how grandmas hold children and the something happens in their eyes and face and expression, it's an entirely different person. This is not the same uh, bitter and heartbroken person that was at the beginning of this story. So that's as fast as I can get through the book of Ruth. Uh, and my point in going through it was simply to show you that there are stories in the Bible where there's suffering and loss and pain and people overcome that and arrive at a place of grace and favor knowing the affection of the God that they love. So, uh, in my life, I'll be for the last two minutes here, I'll be a little more personal. I've, I've known uh, devouring, and I've known suffering, uh, or maybe I've known suffering and suffering and some suffering with devouring and some suffering without devouring what the most accurate way is to say that. Uh, I've mentioned before, there was a, I don't know, probably 15 years ago or so, there was a point in my life where my marriage was in shambles. Um, I separated from my wife for a period of time. Uh, And in that period of time, there was great suffering, but I was also being devoured. Uh, The root of all of that was that I was trying to Trying to do things right, trying to do the best that I could. it was not working, uh, so I was, I was broken. And this was one of the critical pieces where uh, my life fell apart, and in falling apart, I began to know and understand the affection of the Father towards me. It filled my heart. It changed who I was. It made me so that I was able to love. Um, I, most of you know that I, I lost a son uh, it was a long process, several years, uh, really hard process, uh, great suffering in that, great loss in that, and yet, uh, we, my wife and I, both walked out of that with great confidence in knowing the love of the Father for us. Um, staggering different experience than the prior decades, uh, just unbelievable. And the and the difference there is doing one, knowing that. Uh, we are connected to the Father and doing the other one trying to get connected to the Father, I guess. Um, Tim is not here, but I'm going to make reference to him because um, Tim has a story of tremendous loss, uh, really, really hard. Uh, In the middle of it, he mentioned that he came to a point where all of the stuff around him was just too much. And what he heard the Father say to him was that he loved him. Um, he, Tim, Tim walked out of that knowing that he was a cherished child of the Father. Um, and I believe that for Tim that knowing that acceptance, um, it's paramount. It's paramount. Tim mentioned failure, and if you heard, it wasn't like, God forgive me, I forgot to pay that bill, you know, or God forgive me, the," you know, the car's got a flat tire and I can't get it fixed. It was, I can't do this. It's a sweeping notion of none of, none of doing or not doing all these things matters. What matters is I relinquish my thought that I can accomplish all this or any of this apart from God loving and caring for me. So it's this inadequacy that gets covered by the grace of God. Um, I have a, I guess partly from my own story. I just I have this passion for I'm going to call them young men, and it. Young men to me is, you know, under 45 at this point. Um, but it's, and, and it may be, I mean, it's mothers and moms and women as well, but um, you, f- you try to fill a role as a father and a husband or somebody's son or wife or, you know, you're an employee, a manager, a teacher. You're trying to be a Christian, a friend. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of things that you're supposed to be being and, being, and doing well at it. Um, when you're in that mode uh, forgiveness is a function of behavior uh, and for me it was it wasn't exactly a one-to-one trade you know it's like i sinned here and i need to get forgiveness for that but it's it's a i'm not doing good at all of this or hardly any of this at all most of the time and so there's this weight that i carried on my shoulders until i could go to god and say okay god look i'm not getting it it's not going well I'm, but I'm going to lay all this before you. Here it is. I'm going to start over. Okay, that's not the right approach. It's still, uh, it's still me working at trying to make things right. So for you, young men and women who are still there struggling with that, uh, just let it implode. <laughs> just <laughs> who cares? You know, I mean, let go, be forgiven know that the, uh, the whole of it is covered already by the grace of God, by the, the favor of forgiveness that we already have. Um, the Lord is our portion. He is our cup. Um, if you uh, set your eyes on Him, uh, He will be at your right hand and you will not be shaken. Um, this, In the midst of that suffering and that angst and the, the having things not pan out the way you want them to. Use that as that opportunity to let your heart be opened and for the affection of the Father to come in and just acknowledge you. Um, I spent a lot of time just saying uh, Father I, I, you know, I know and I believe and I confess and I articulate that your word says that you, you love me, you care about me, uh, you know me uh, none of this failure or circumstance matters to you, uh, but my heart really wants to hear it. Um, And so in confessing that and acknowledging that, I set up a framework in which I then get to hear God tell me, yeah, Wes, I really like you. Uh, And I can tell you in my own life that it's over and over and over and over again that affection comes through, whether it's uh, through some circumstance or through reading the word or uh, a dozen other places The Father is able to touch my heart, and I know that he is able to touch yours. So, There's a few more paragraphs here, but I'm going to stop right there. Uh, So thank you very much, uh, and may the grace of God give you a life in the midst of this life, uh, it is a, it's not for wimps. So, amen. Thank
0: you. And no, I'm not going to preach, also. I just want to share a verse with you that was sent to me because I think it confirms all this. And it was sent to me uh, night before last. And it was regarding what I was going through in suffering. And it was Psalm 147, verse 3. He says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So thank you. This is the way he does it. He sends a message to our heart to to heal us right in the midst of our suffering. So I just want to pray that these words would get in there in us, okay? Lord, thank you. Thank you for Wes. Thank you for uh, this son that you love so much. Thank you that uh, you would bring him to us to open up to us. um, Lord, this thing that so often looks like a a, something dead, and it's so alive. The suffering of life brings us life. And we we don't grasp that. All we know is we hurt. But this is what we can grasp, you. Just what happened this morning, I ask for each one who is suffering right now, that you would reveal, just as Wes spoke, that you would reveal who you are to us in the midst of this. We thank you for your word, and we receive it. I receive this into my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.